Hey everybody, Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome to the Canberra Business Podcast. We've got a very special guest. This one is really good. I actually sat here, I just enjoyed doing this. I learned a great deal. You're going to hear someone in this podcast talk about their business, their product, in a way that you hear few other people ever talk about their product or their service. It's just fascinating to listen to my good friend Tim Kirk, the uh, the chief winemaker at Clonakiller here in the Canberra region, talk about the amazing story of Clonakiller, what they've achieved, uh, what they've been able to do globally, the kind of culture they've built. But really what we talk a lot about is product. And I think one of the absolute pillars of business success is product. It doesn't matter how passionate you might be or how good your systems are or how good marketing or your back-end systems, but if your product is not great, you're always going to struggle. So this is a this is a great podcast. It's about product. It's about beauty. It's about creating something really special in the world. You're going to hear a really interesting guy. So everybody, relax, sit back wherever you are. Enjoy the Canberra Business Podcast with me, your host, Jonathan Doyle, as we talk to Canberra Region Winemaker from clonakiller.com.au, Mr. Tim Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Canberra Business Podcast. My name is Jonathan Doyle. I'm your host from Canberra Executive Coaching. Got another special treat for you this week. We were just roaming the streets of Monica, randomly approaching uh, passers-by with business knowledge, and we found someone very special for you. We've got a, uh, a wonderful guest for you on this episode, and today we're going to talk a little bit about product. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I think the challenge in any business is it doesn't matter how much you care. Sometimes it doesn't matter what your systems are, it doesn't matter what your execution's like if you have a terrible product. And today we're going to talk about a product that many of us love dearly and uh, a product that uh, my guest can be very proud of because it's an excellent, excellent product that's uh, uh, something the whole Canberra region can be very proud of. So you're all sitting there going, great, great introduction, who is this? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to introduce you to a very special friend of mine. This is uh, Tim Kirk. Tim Kirk's one of the... Uh, one of the great people at Clonakilla Wines out at Murrum Bateman, technically outside Canberra, but part of the Canberra region. Tim Kirk, welcome to the Canberra Business Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited. I want to talk about, um, look, let's start with the backstory. I want to talk a little bit about uh, many people have heard of the brand. Mm. They, many people like wine. But I've been lucky to hear kind of the backstory to how this all happened. Um it wasn't just a case of a couple of people thinking, hey, let's just, I mean, you did, you started the business, but take us back to how this all happened. I mean, a great brand doesn't happen overnight. A great product doesn't happen overnight. Take the listeners to how did the Clonakiller wine story come about? Okay, that's a great question, and uh, it's a great story. It's to do with my dad, really, John Kirk, Dr. John Kirk, who is a great man on so many levels. I'm, I'm very proud of him. So he's the founder and still the owner of, of Clonakilla and a uh, fascinating fellow. He's, he can, he's Irish, born to Irish parents in England, but born to Irish parents. And um, he, fascinating life. He, he went to boarding school. He was sent to boarding school when he, when he was four, which is pretty tough, I reckon. And it was arguably the scariest year in recent history, 1939, the war had just started and he was at a boarding school not far from Manchester, so north of London. And, uh, yeah, he, he kind of grew up reasonably tough, separated from his family. But the, the light at the end of the tunnel in those cold English years was that he would be able to go back to his granddad's farm in County Clare in Ireland. And the farm, of course, was called Clonakilla and it was a dairy farm. And it was great. It was, it was, he just loved it. He just, he fell in love with the idea of the farm, really, there. That clonakilla that was cows, there was milk, there was cream, there was porridge, there was pigs, there was pastures. You know, more, more do you want? There was less bombs going off. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, uh, of course, because Ireland wasn't at war. Yeah. It was neutral in the war. So there was no bombs going off. Whereas in Manchester, there, there was. And, uh, so that was the first part of the story. And then later, dad, his parents were quite entrepreneurial, particularly his mum, actually. She was quite the businesswoman. And in fact, one of my visits to Ireland, one of my, one of dad's cousin told me that if my grandmother had lived longer, she would have owned half of Ireland by now. She was really was an entrepreneur. And um, when dad was in his teens, my grandma, Ellen, 
and her husband Thomas, my grandma and grandpa, they owned a couple of hotels, quite significant hotels in County Clare, and one of them was the Hydro Hotel in Lisdon Varna. Beautiful music town, party town. Farmers would all congregate in Lisdon Varna when there was, when the harvest was done. The the story was if you want if you were a cashed up farmer and you wanted to find a bride, Lisdon Varna was the place to be. And no drinking, of course. It was just, uh, it was just mineral water, famous for its mineral water, right? It's, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's the spas. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so Dad would go back, this is when he was in his teens, and um, he'd be put to work in the family business in the hotel, and he was given the job of working behind the bar and looking after the guests in the dining room, and he would be serving wine. He would be 14 or 15, and he'd be serving wine. And more than that, he actually had to deal with the traveling wine salespeople, so he figured he better learn something about wine so that he could make good purchasing decisions for the family business, and he started reading He's a very bright man, my dad. Even as a young fella, he would read a lot and he would read books about wine and he learnt in that time about the great wines of Europe, Bordeaux, Burgundy, the Rhone Valley, Champagne, the great ports from Portugal, you know, all this, the great Italian wines. So even before he developed a taste for it, he actually fell in love with the idea of wine. It just captivated him, you know, that you can have this fruit that you grow, a particular variety of fruit, we call them grapes, and that they have a capacity to do something which effectively no other fruit does, which is to interpret the landscape. The French have this romantic idea which they call terroir, which is basically sort of encapsulated in our word landscape, but it's even more. It's everything that makes a site distinctive. So the soil structure, the slope of the hill, the way the wind moves through that particular valley, All of those things, how high the sun gets, how it interacts with the shape of the hill, all that's encapsulated in this word terroir. The French have this view that the grapevine's job is to give a voice to the terroir. And probably the classic example here are the great vineyards of Burgundy, where it's all one grape variety, Pinot Noir, if it's a red, Chardonnay if it's white. And over well over a thousand years, they've been growing grapes and making wine in Burgundy. And every little parcel of that numerous mile long slope called the golden slope the coat door is is categorized according to its potential quality and there's four levels right so there's generic bourgogne basic burgundy then there's village burgundy then there's premier cru burgundy grand cru and it's all about the very specific elements within that tiny little parcel so it's just fascinating you know, dad was fascinated as you can hear i am mm. fascinated by this whole concept and so cut a long story short he came to australia in 1968, he'd been headhunted, I think you'd say these days, by the CSIRO, Division of Plant Industry, and they were based here in Canberra at the foot of Black Mountain. And uh, he started establishing his career as an, as an Australian research scientist. But his love of wine had stayed with him. So he started looking around at this climate that we have here and thought, well, this is pretty similar to many of the areas in Europe where they grow some of the greatest wines in the world. So why isn't there a wine industry here? And I think to his great credit, and I'm so proud of him for this, really, he said, well, I'm going to have a crack. He asked around, he asked some of his friends at the CSIRO, well, why isn't there a wine industry here? And the general wisdom was that it's just too cold. Because if you think about it, Jonathan, the, you know, the historic wine regions of Australia had been more warm climates, so the Barossa Valley, the Hunter Valley, McLaren Vale, generally warmer. And um, But Dad's vision of viticulture was a European one. So mm. he he bought a brand new subdivision of a much larger wool-growing property in 1971, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Now, unbeknown to Dad, exactly at the same time, another CSIRO guy, Dr. Edgar Reek, an entomologist, a brilliant man as well, had planted the vineyard over at Lake George. So we say now that Dad, John, John Kirk and Edgar Rick at Lake George, Dad at Murrumbayman, are the two kind of original founders of the Canberra, what we now know as the Canberra Wine District, which is, has grown to well over 150 vineyards. Soon after, people like Ken Helm, of course, came along and others too, and it just grew and grew and grew. And, and now, as you know, and as I think many people listening to this podcast would know, Canberra wines are really like a hot ticket item. They like, Totally, like this cool climate thing, the elegance that we have here, the, the the fineness of the aroma and the beauty of the texture. Like It just seems to be a style of wine whose time has come. And a lot of people are looking for it, and a lot of people are writing about it and talking about it. And we, we sell these things all over the world now. We export to numerous countries, and the demand is 
as we were chatting just before the you know we started the podcast that the demand is just growing all the time and it's a really exciting industry to be in so let's talk about that when you say style of wine what i mean we talk about it's cold climate what is that for you when you say the particular style of wine we're talking about? Why do people like it? Why? I mean, it, I mean, I'm I drank it last night and it, it is just fantastic. But what is that style? What are, what are we talking about? In a way, it's a bit of a pendulum swing away from the bigger, richer, thicker styles that most of us grew up drinking. And it's not a criticism of those styles at all. They're entirely valid. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the big barosses, big black wines, you know, full of tannin of fruit, gorgeous fruit and plenty of alcohol. And, you know, that's kind of the style that certainly in export markets Australia became known for. And many of us grew up drinking and still love, you know, and really in the middle of a camera winter, a big Barossa Red is exactly the sort of thing that you might want to reach for because of its warming, rich, you know, deep flavour. That's great. But I think there has been a move in recent years away from power in wine per se to wines of um, a little bit more refinement and elegance, from heaviness to, to lightness. And that's a style thing in many ways, but but it also suits the sort of cuisine that we're eating more these days. So, like, if you're eating more Asian-inspired or Asian infusion uh, foods that that you're looking for something that isn't going to really dominate your palate, you're not, you're not looking to be whacked around there by alcohol. You want something that's a little bit lighter with a, a generosity of flavor, but not a heaviness. And, and that's exactly what we deliver in this region. And a lot of it comes, actually, from something very sim- simple – it's the coolness of the nights, the coolness of the nights. I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, I was fascinated by this concept of, well, how are we different, say, from the Barossa? And I looked up the Weather Bureau of Meteorology uh, site and saw that the forecast high for Adelaide and Canberra that day was the same. This was in March, 36 degrees, pretty warm, warm Canberra day, warm Adelaide day. But the difference is in the nighttime forecast. The forecast for Adelaide, the minimum forecast was 26. And the minimum forecast for Canberra was 16. And wow. it's that downward spiral of temperature that we get at night here because of our height above sea level. We're 600 above, aren't we? Yeah, we're 600. So that's what we are there at Murrumbayman. And it, it just makes all the difference. So let's talk about your journey into this. So you had a background a long time ago in the education space. What brought you into this? Were you looking for a change? Were you just excited by what was happening? Because Conakilla has really popped. Like this is a, becoming a globally, it is a globally recognised brand. It's an extremely good product, which you want to talk about. Mm. Um, what happened for you? I mean, because you've been on a journey. Like you have become, um, from what I understand, extremely educated in this space. So there's obviously a big learning journey for you. Um, you would have picked up some of that as a kid growing up in that family, but... How, tell us your journey. How did, how did you come into to being where you oh, are it's now? A great, it's a great question. It's um, Well, of course, it starts with my family. And uh, as you mentioned there, that I grew up in a, a family where wine was just part of our family culture. As far back as I can remember, wine was always on the table. You know, my dad, uh, he'd always have a couple of glasses. I, I have never seen him adversely affected by alcohol. Mm. It was always something that he um, partook in in moderation uh, it was just part of the culture. Maybe a bit weirder than most families in that my dad would drink a, a glass of wine and then he'd take notes on it. Really? I'm not sure many Canberra dads are <laughs> do, 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 <laughs> ripping out the notebook. Sitting around with a VB going, oh, this is from a different factory. I can this is a little <laughs> bit different. just make a few flavor so, descriptors here. So he would sit around um, and just... Yeah, see, so you grew up with this. You grew up with somebody paying it was attention. The culture. To paying it, it's, that's actually that's a key phrase, pay attention. Pay attention to what you're tasting. Pay attention to what you're smelling. And in his case, make make notes. And I suppose that must have kind of made an impression on me. And he would regularly offer a little sip to us. I'd be sitting immediately on his left to this. Remember, I, well, listeners may not know that I'm actually one of six boys. I'm, I'm with no girls in the family, six boys. So my my growing up dinner table conversations were pretty raucous. There's plenty of ego in the room. They're all brilliant, my brothers are. In various ways, um, so there was lots of energy and firepower in in the room, and I'd be sitting to Dad's left. But the wine was always part of that, yeah. you know. Like, um, and so pay attention. I saw Dad paying attention, and he'd offer me a sip, and I'd have a sip, and I never really liked it as a kid. 
Um, but I wasn't afraid of it either. It was never a taboo. It was never a big deal. And it was just part of what we did. So when I left home, and I left home about 18, I moved into households with other blokes. And um, I realized, and it was a bit of a shock, that actually many people don't have wine with dinner every night. Mm. So I found that when it wasn't there, I missed it. And I started looking for it. So I started in small ways yeah, over the next couple of years investigating wine myself. I'd grown up going out to the vineyard with Dad, with one or more of my brothers, often in the company of my brother Jeremy. And uh, we would hang out with Dad and probably be less useful than any practical use, like run around chasing sheep around, building cubby houses, climbing trees. What age are you when you're doing that? Oh, I just probably Jeremy? started doing that when I was about eight or ten or and then and then through my teenage years a little bit. Um so again, you know, it was just part of us, part of our family, that we had a winery and a vineyard. And But then at some point, and I can't exactly say when, it just started to become a, an interest. And I know that um, in, uh, when I finally convinced the beautiful woman who's now my wife, Lara, to marry me, this was back in 89, a long time ago, you know, um, I thought, well, we know. she said yes. I thought, well, what we need to do is have a, we need to start buying some wine, so for anniversaries and baptisms of babies or whatever that we should have something good so i bought a box of wine my first box of wine and i thought well that'll do i don't know how many i've got now mate but i've got a a one is never enough it's this is true yeah i was actually at your wedding i think i told you that it was oh man that's bizarre i was i mean that's a a while back how long you been married Uh, well that was 1990 which as as um some would know is actually one of the great years for red wine around the world good year for wine. good year for marriages 1990, you know, yes. there's going to be people listening to this that weren't born then. Oh, that's extraordinary. Isn't it? It's just rude to be that young. So you're out there. Oh, sorry. So you buy your first box when you marry, when you were Yeah, yeah. So bought, bought the wine. And then, of course, one was never going to be enough because I just started reading about it. And then I just became completely intrigued. And were, I had were to. Were you know intrigued for, for wine? You just developed the interest, or was it the connection? To, to a family narrative and childhood, was it, was it both? I think both. I think both. Like, there's a lot of people get really ner- nerdy about wine because it's an utterly fascinating topic. But um, I got really nerdy about wine and we had a winery in the family. So that was even better. So then, 1990, we got married. We moved to Melbourne. And as you mentioned, I started a, a job as a teacher. I was working at the Jesuit School Xavier College in Melbourne. And... and I still to this day I have no formal qualifications in in wine science or wine making. My training's in in theology mm. and biblical studies in particular. And I was teaching religious education at this big Catholic boys' school. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple of great things about that. One is that you're in Melbourne and there's some really cranking wine regions around Melbourne. You get get out to the Yarra Valley, Mornington Peninsula, head out Geelong Way, or out to Ararat near the Grampians district. So many, or Rutherglen on the way down to Melbourne, some of the greatest fortifieds in the world. There's so much around Victoria, which is just fantastic, you know, for someone who's passionate about wine. And the other thing, being a school teacher, is that uh, we always got holidays around Easter time, like the end of the first uh, term or in the first half of the first semester. And I used to then motor up in the, uh, drag my new bride and then our new little baby Madeline up and give Dad a hand with the winemaking. So I was totally smitten with it by this stage. So that's on that. That's what I'm, getting, what I'm interested in. What did you feel? What did you experience? So, you know, you're living in this big city in Melbourne. You, you, you're doing a job that you're obviously, you know, good at, but yeah. your, your heart's not 100% there. If you can go back to that time when you're making, you're helping, what did you feel? What was it like? It was thrilling, you know. It was thrilling. I, I just, something about um, every variety has different complex flavors and aromas than every vintage has its own personality. Every site, every patch of the vineyard has its own personality. So you kind of get swept up in the intricacy and the mystery of it all, you know. Um, yeah, I, no, I still find that utterly fascinating. Well, we've just finished um, our 2018 vintage and, and we make every parcel of the, the hill that Clonakilla sits on is fermented, picked and fermented separately and mm. then put into barrels separately. And then we have the great task... Uh, with my winery manager, Brian Martin, and um, myself and um, our viticultural manager and our assistant winemaker, we'll taste through all the batches that we've made. It could be 20 or 30 of them, of Shiraz Viognier, mm. our top one. Every single batch, every parcel is kept separate, fermented separately, and we taste it and retaste it. Then we do it all blind to see which are the greatest parcels in every given any given year. And the greatest parcels, of course, are the ones that become the Shiraz Viognier. 
So, but, so how big is the parcel? What sort of size? Oh, we well, we two tons. Two, we got we got. Well, I can be very specific about it. I'm not sure how interesting it is, but we got nine two ton fermenters. We got ten four ton fermenters. We've got four ten ton fermenters. So everything is kept separate. And so for lots of, of one ton fermenters. For all of us Philistines, Philistines, we're we're talking about. A geographic area, 100, 200, 300 metres apart, can be totally. fundamentally different to taste. Totally. Yep. And that's because of the soil, wind yep. movement, does light it, and that, shadow. Does that particular parcel of vines face south or north or east or west or a combination of the above? One of the soil variations, because there's definitely soil variations over a very short um, you know, span of territory. Um, and then there's other complexing characters too, like we have numerous different clones of Shiraz, all of which are subtly different. Some of them are planted on their own root and some of them are grafted onto rootstocks. So we have all of those complex elements that can have some effect. It's fascinating. So let's talk about product. Let's, this is what I wanted to get to is tons of business owners listening to this. People are passionate about what they do most of the time, but it's not just enough to be passionate. What do you think are the, the crucial elements of a great product? What you know, for people to be successful in business, this is crucial. This is a real key thing we want to get to. In your experience, in your work, what do you think is the essence of a great product? That is a, a great and crucial question and one that I've thought about a lot. I, I, I talk about this actually quite a lot. I, I think that you have to start. If you're going to really be successful in, in business, or in any anything that you're engaged in, um, it's essential that you make sure you start with a product. I have this phrase, a product of genuine quality. So what's that? Well, I can only illustrate it from my own perspective of talking about wine. So we've talked about some of the complexities of the geology out there, Warren Bateman. It's fascinating. It's uh, volcanic soils, decomposed. It's actually dacite, technically. It's granitic, but it's called dacite. And it's decomposed dacite, so it's a volcanic lava flow which has, over millions of years, turned into soil. But on top of this volcanic dacite level layer, there's this kind of layer of red clay. And I've had, kid you not, Jonathan, I've had dozens and dozens of soil scientists out at our place, a lot of them from the ANU, really terrific people out there doing work in soil science. Um, looking at this, they're fascinated by this red clay layer and what it is. And what they reckon it is, is dust that over, let's say, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, has blown in from significantly further west, the red centre, uh, in the dust storms. That even this year we saw one come over in the red dust in the sky. Mm. It's fascinating to see. That has blown in from the west and settled on top of the decomposed volcanic lava flow. And then you've got topsoil on top of that. And that clay is fascinating for its capacity to hold water, but not be impermeable. It's minerally rich uh, and has various other elements which are intrigued soil scientists and, and me. So we realized, um, uh, see, when my dad established Clonakilla, like we didn't know what was going to do well. So dad sensibly planted a, a veritable fruit salad vineyard, like lots of small plots of lots of different varieties. And we've realized now over time that you can make a pretty decent wine out of any number of varieties because of the steadiness and evenness of our climate here. But there's something about Shiraz in reds and Riesling in whites that just really seems to sing here. Mm. And uh, we'll put it another way. When you take Shiraz you get, and you get a decent site with this kind of decomposed volcanic soil with this red clay layer and topsoil over that, you plant, you plant Shiraz in that environment in this climate, with our cool nights and warm days, warm summers and cold winters, you get something which is just like no other Shiraz. Mm. It's got its own distinctive personality. And when, when you get it ripe in a half, any half-decent year, you get these amazing aromatic dimensions. Like It smells a, a bit like certainly more red berries. So I'm talking more like raspberries, strawberries, red, red currants. But then on top of that, there's this, this floral thing. It smells a little bit like violets or roses, particularly in a slightly warmer year, like 2018 we just had. And then, woven through all the floral elements and the ripe berries, there's this intriguing spice thing going on. So a little bit like cracked pepper, a little bit like cardamom, uh, any you know, like a whole veritable, brilliant, beautiful Indian spice rack. All that dimension in the aroma. like, And we realized pretty... Um, 
early on that that was pretty special. That that was not really like Shiraz from any other place in Australia. It was intriguing. And in fact, it was what it was closest to was the sort of Shiraz that comes out of the northern Rhone Valley in, in France. And I visited there in 1991. Lara, my wife, and I visited Cote Roti, which is this amazing wine region just south of the great city of Lyon. Steepest vineyards I've ever seen in my life. Treacherous to work. Where they've been growing grapes and making wine for over 2,000 years. We know that because it occurs in, it appears in Roman writings from the period, you know. And they do this thing there. They make this Shiraz there, which has got those similar sort of characters, this amazing perfume. And they do this other intriguing thing. They actually ferment the Shiraz with a small percentage of this white grape, Viognier. Mm. And here's the amazing part of the story is my dad, at the suggestion of my brother Jeremy, who's no shrinking violet himself, he's a very he's always a senior counsel barrister in Sydney, brilliant guy. But at the age of thirteen, he said to Dad, "What well, you know, we should try and do something a bit different, Dad. Let's find a variety that other people aren't doing, and uh, have a crack at that." And Dad thought, "Well, that's wise." It's read his viticultural text, found this great variety Viognier, which is grown in the Rhone Valley, which is continental inland France and not so mm. dissimilar to here. Dad planted some Viognier. Very hard to find. Very feeble little rootlings. It took him took him six years to bear any fruit. Normally you get fruit in three. And that happened to coincide with the year that I came back from the Rhone Valley where I'd seen this Shiraz Viognier. So I said to Dad, well, you know, we, you've been working away growing this Viognier, real labour of love, and it's about to crop for the first time. And Dad's intention had been to make a white wine. Well, I said, well, why don't we try the fermenting it with the Shiraz like I saw them do in Karate. So to his credit, Dad said, sure, let's give it a go. We did. And the rest is history, as they say. It is history. But back to the question. There's something about Shiraz in these soils, in this climate, which is distinctive and intriguing and beautiful. So the business insight there, because for people listening I like to talk about controlling the controllables. Now, you guys have leveraged – it's not good luck because there was obviously a lot of science and thought and observation and attentiveness. So I guess the first business insight is that well, that we need to be attentive to the environment and to the opportunity that's present. What have you guys brought to this? Because, yes, this is all true. It's the soil. It's – the acumen of a 13-year-old guy who's now a barrister going, hey, what if we tried this? I'm, I'm interested in drawing out what you guys have brought to the product because you could put another group of people in the same space. What do you think are some of the things that you guys have brought to the success story here? Is it staffing? Is it culture? Um, what are some of the core pillars that people listening can go could apply to their own sense of product or service? What have you guys brought to the table? Look, that's an excellent question. And, and of course, it's a multi-layered answer that there's my dad's brilliant um, entrepreneurial step in planting a vineyard in the first place. And in a way, the overarching answer to all of those elements is curiosity. Curiosity. So my dad says that he just had that question resonating inside of him. What would it tastes like? What would it smell mm. like if this we made it. wine from this region, from yep. Canberra? What does Canberra region smell and taste like when expressed as wine? Isn't that, isn't that a fascinating yeah. question? It's rich. So yeah. curiosity. And then, of course, uh, my, you know, dad worked and established the vineyard. Brilliant. My brother's curiosity about what if we planted a variety that other people aren't planting. And then my traveling to the Rhone to see what they were doing in this great region of Cote Roti and, and tasting in the cellars of uh, Marcel Gigal, the, the, the greatest uh, producer of Cote Roti, generally regarded as the greatest producer of Cote Roti, I had an invitation to go and visit him and taste his wines, and I tasted out of barrel his three great wines, single vineyard, single parcel, Shiraz, two of them Shiraz Viognese, one a straight Shiraz, a La Moulin, La Turc, and La Landon. Tiny production, very expensive, very wondrous wines, and I was just totally... Uh, mesmerized by them they were like nothing i tried in australia they had this soaring perfume this elegance this glorious floral dimension this complex spice beautiful red fruit and the the, the texture of the tannins just so silky and fine you know very different to the big robust blockbusters mm. that we have in this country from south australia particularly or from some areas of victoria there and uh, i just thought wow like then that's a word too there was a wow factor 
that I thought if ever we could produce a wine from our little Murray Bateman vineyard that in any way approximated the complexity, the subtlety, the elegance, the purity of these wines, I'd be I'd be a happy man. And it became my life's task in a way at that point to to attempt that. Why? Like I want to ask that question. I want to go because I can see you there and when you say that wow moment, what is it about being human or being business people that you have an experience and if I'm listening to you correctly, it's like you kind of want as many people as possible to experience that too. Um, what What is that? Why Why not do average wines? Why not just focus on making money and retiring to the coast? What, why, why do you yeah, want to share that with people? Yeah, that's right. That's a good question, isn't it? Because in all of that, in Dad's establishing the vineyard, my brother's question, my travel to the Rhone, none of that was about money. Yeah. You know? My dad was a successful scientist. He never really expected to make huge amounts of money out of wine. Mm. Um, no, it's about passion. I mean, it's about beauty. It's about being captured by something bigger than than my own experience to that point. It's about uh, having your vision elevated to see things so much from like standing on a mountain and seeing much further than you've seen before. That that's what it was, really, and that's what it still is. You know, like and some of it. Listeners will have been to probably some of the dinners that we run and uh, the events that we put on tastings, especially the dinners because they're 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 a celebration of wow. That's what they're about, you know. Like we're really genuinely excited about what we've been able to, and this is the key word: capture, not construct, not manipulate, but capture from this environment that we call home, the Canberra region, the Canberra district out there at Murray Bateman. We are about capturing the essence and the dignity and the beauty of that site as expressed in wine. That's what we're doing. And you want to share that with people? Yeah, because it's, it's, it's a love thing. It's, it's, I mean, that's a ridiculous thing to no, say. No, it's probably. not, because what, what I'm listening, when I'm listening to you, a couple of thoughts. Um, so many people in business, and we can all get there at some times, is we're so, it's, it can be stressful. It can be, there's so much going on that everybody's just like, you know, are we going to survive? How do we keep going? But you're talking about business on another level. Uh, business is a kind of expression of something else. Um, I want to ask you one of the questions, sec. But when you said something about, I think listeners really need to hear this again. You talked about your father, this concept of curiosity. I think that's a really interesting thing. Um, Steve Jobs, as people would know if they've read the biographies, wasn't a particularly pleasant human in some ways. But one of the things that we, we can admire is this deep, desire to create and to bring an experience um i I like that i think he was curious about what's possible i think it's fascinating you talk about that with your father like i I hadn't thought about that being curious about creating things in the world and risk like i've been really enjoying mel robbins book at the moment the five second rule it's fascinating is this this psychological principle that pretty much our brains have evolved to do one thing remarkably well which is to keep us safe Right. So we, our brains, uh, I mean, I keep trying to tell people this, that the brains we have now are fundamentally very little different to the brains we had about 200,000 years ago. But the environment we live in is fundamentally different. So our prefrontal cortex is completely wired to be risk-averse and to keep us safe. But when you read something like Mel Robbins, this five-second principle is that if you don't take action in a relatively short time frame, your brain will talk you out of it. And so I loved it when you talk about your father taking a risk because in business, it's part of goes with the territory, right? At some point you have to go, I believe in this, I want to try this, and I could go and work in the public sector or do something else, but I'm going to have a go. So hmm. curiosity, risk. And beauty. And, 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 and the wow. Create, you know, like create something beautiful. Something beautiful. And that goes back to the, the original point, that product, it's not like... For me, it was never about manipulating circumstances so that I could make money or a lot of money. Uh, it's about actually being seduced by the beauty of something and being caught up in a, uh, I don't know what to say here, caught, caught up in the excitement of, of that, you know, that this is something beautiful. Um, and that's the product of genuine quality, to, you know, that, that I just know that it's true, that I'm not making this up. I mean, we've had, as you know, like so all the major critics in this country have said in turn that mm. Clonacilla Shrasviana is one of the great wines of this country, 100%. which amazes me, yeah. amazes me. But I'm prepared to concede that that's probably true, yeah. and not because of any cleverness on on our part, but just because we were in the right place at the right time, and we were curious, and we said, well, then Dan said, well, what would it taste like if we made wine here? And then the, the Shiraz Viognier thing, and then... 
you know, what if we made malt wine more like um, how they do in France than they do in the Barossa? How would that go? And so we started using wine making techniques, like incorporating whole bunches in our ferments um, rather than destemming everything, using French, fine grain French oak rather than American, which is very standard for Shiraz making in the 1990s, and long soaking macerations. So they leave the skins and juice together for three weeks rather than three or four days, which is was typical in the Barossa. So you just constantly exploring, Curious. even now. Totally. And we're always looking for ways of doing that fundamental task better, which is to capture the essence of the landscape as expressed through grapes and wine. That's what we're about. So in a way, we want to be as out of the way as possible. We don't want to impose what we think the wine's supposed to taste like. We're trying to listen, trying to hear. Excuse me, it's going to get a bit ridiculously poetic. We're going to try and hear the song, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the landscape singing and to record that effectively in as pure as form as possible through the as possible through the wines that we make. Now, isn't that a fantastic Now, idea? I'm listening to you, and I had two thoughts before when you were actually really describing the wine. Is One is, um, like a lot of listeners, when you start describing wine, I'm kind of like, I have this strong urge to drink it. I'm just like, when you, when you really get going, I'm like, Tim's talking about wine. This part of my brain's going, do you know what I'd really like right now? Yeah. And the other thing I'm really excited about and uh, is last night I was drinking your 2016 Arita, which I guess is still pretty right. young. But when you were a moment ago, you were talking about spice and pepper last night i'm walking through the kitchen talking to karen i'm drinking the 2016 i'm like thinking to myself there's this really noticeable little sense of pepper there now mm. i don't know if that's true so please yeah, don't totally. embarrass me on the podcast but yeah. but 100%. i just went i could taste that there so i'm, I'm just listeners i'm a little proud of myself that i actually could taste something there Excellent. um my, my friend i want to ask you something that, that you might find really hard if you, when you talked a moment ago about this wow thing this when you've tasted those great wines and what you're trying to bring in this wine and this business if you could describe what it is that's so integral about this whole thing the, the brand the business the product the experience in a word or a phrase do you have one Well, it's it's probably back to that thing about um, he- hearing the voice of the landscape and uh, and celebrating the beauty of that. That does come back to beauty. I'm, like, I'm very captured by that concept. I mean, I just because I you know, I'll put it this way. I mentioned that my background's in theology. Mm. So one of, one of the you forgive me if I venture into this. People will forgive me, I know, that that one of the things about theology is like, you know, if you believe in God and believe in God's good, um, how does that express? How do we encounter that? And one of the ways to, historically that people have thought about that is through the is the beauty that's around us. Yeah. Just look at the beauty of the world, you know. So for me, as sort of like a theologically trained, passionate person, uh, I work with beauty all yeah. the time. I'm trying to, to see beauty, smell beauty, taste beauty, and, and capture it so that others can do the same. And I just love that we work, you know, the team works so hard. Our winemaking community there at Clonicula works hard to capture the essence of this landscape. And then we send it out, we send it to restaurants in Canberra and Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane, and then beyond to London, Toronto, New York, Tokyo, you know. I just love that, that that this little part of, let's call it creation, the natural world and the beauty of it is kind of sent out around the world for other people to enjoy. So it's something along those lines that, that I, I just it's still, thing. you know, so many years in now that I just am so excited by, like, you know, as I said before, you, we'll taste the wines we've just made from 2018. We're going to do a tasting tomorrow, actually, of every batch that we made. In 2018, every Shiraz Viena bench. And I just know that it's going to be, it'll be moving. It'll yeah. be, it'll be impactful. It'll be seeing those aromas and flavors and textures uh, that the personality of this particular vintage overlaid on the personality of those particular vineyard parcels. It's, I always find that moving because it's, it's beautiful. I'm listening to you when you talk about beauty and I'm thinking, uh, you know, podcast listeners, you're getting a rich, you're getting a rich feed here today. The, the Greeks, in classical Greece, you know, Aristotle would talk about the transcendentals. Um, if people haven't heard of them, they're, they're called transcendentals because they transcend individual people's experience of them. And for the Greeks, there was truth, there was beauty, and there was goodness. And their philosopher, Hans Urs von Balthasar, used to say that for most of us in life, one will be dominant, that most of us will either be, you know, attracted to, to truth as an ideal, to beauty as an ideal, or to goodness as an ideal. Now, he also said that you want to strengthen the ones you're not super strong in. Mm, but I'm listening to you talk about business, and I'm like, 
you know, if you're a business owner, what is it about your product or your service that's that's true that you can believe is a is a viable good thing to do? And goodness, like bringing something into the world that is good for people, totally bringing something into the world that's beautiful. Um, it's it's never about conning people. It's not about manipulating people. It's it's about you know, if I didn't believe in what we did, if I didn't think that these wines were genuinely good, there's no way that I could do what I do in you know being involved in our community, making them and marketing them. I just think you have to have integrity and believe in what you're 100%. doing. Hundred percent. I think people yeah. listening, like, and it's a refresher for me that we have to believe that what, that it is better to do what we do than not to do it. That what we're doing is is bringing something into the world. That would be missing if it wasn't there. And people yeah. might go, "Well, that's ridiculous in business." I go, it "Doesn't matter. If you're a florist, you're bringing something to the world that's beautiful. People need it. Brings richness." Um, on the last podcast we did with Jason from Evo, um, Tony Robbins' great quote about, uh, you know, when he's coaching a business, he always says to people, "What business are you in?" Question one. Wants people to think about what business are you in. Second question: What business are you really in? Yeah, and great. the example he gives is, we said with Jason, listeners would know this one people in restaurant businesses you know you would say to them what business you in they go i'm in the restaurant business and he'd say you're wrong he's going you're not in the restaurant business you're in the experience business Mm. you're using food and ambience and environment to create a rich experience so we maybe if i you know frame this question for each you know person on the podcast if somebody said to you you know oh have you met tim kirk tim's a winemaker tim's in the wine business what, what business are you really in do you think Oh, you know, referring back to our conversation, I guess I'm in the beauty, you're in the beauty, <laughs> beauty industry. So you wake up oh, this morning thinking you're a winemaker, and yeah, now well, you're I'll like, tell, oh, gosh, you, I'm a beautician. You know, some of the things that moments I'm proudest of, like, um, like I've won, or we've won, it's not me, it's our team, we've won significant awards. Like I've been named Australian Winemaker of the Year a couple yeah. of times. We've won Wine of the Year numerous times. We've won, you know, trophies and wine shows. But the things that I'm proudest of, I remember like once at a dinner in Canberra a couple of years ago, I was um, talking to some of the folks at the dinner and uh, there was a couple there, you know. I don't think they, they were, they were just a, a young couple. They, they had some kids at home, um, but they just love Clonakilla. And they told me how they buy Clonakilla Shiraz Viognier and they open it on all their wedding anniversaries. They, oh, yeah. they open a Clonakilla Shiraz Viognier. So for me, that was very um, powerful. Because I thought, well, what could be better than that? So you're basically there in the context of people celebrating their love, loving commitment and, and life together yeah. and in all the challenges and difficulties that all of us know that marriage and family entails, anniversaries, those peak moments, and to be there through the wine, you know, to help them celebrate that 100%. and that they they collect it and they sell it and they look forward to tasting it on their anniversary to mark those occasions. I thought that was uh, fantastic and and just a, a thrill, you know. Hundred percent. We had a we had a beautiful moment last night. It's um it's a funny story. We we have a new dog, a, a beautiful little puppy. My wife Karen has never wanted dogs. Always afraid of dogs. She's finally got this tiny cavoodle, this stunning little tiny thing. She literally rocks it like a baby in her arms. So last night we go to puppy preschool. I stepped up. Didn't want to be there. Agreed to do it. Yeah. And uh, we get home, and we have this moment. We put our two two of our younger kids to bed. And we're out in the main living area and uh, I'm playing guitar again, getting lessons. Excellent. And uh, so I'm there playing uh, playing guitar. We've got candles. It's warm. It's winter. It's beautiful. Olivia, my eldest daughter there, is is holding the dog and uh, and Karen goes to me. She goes, oh, can you get me some more of that Clonakilla? And I'm like, hey, so you're right. We, it was a really nice night. We all sat there. I'm drinking, I'm, I'm, you know, and for listeners, I'm not drinking all the time. But um, it was just a. You're right. It was a beautiful moment just to share that oh, experience. Great. And that um, is great. And that's so, what it's there for. It's uh, so it is about relationship, isn't it? Yeah. And, and and about you know, I love meal times. Such powerful commun- yeah. community building events, both for you know, for families, for couples, for for friends. It's just and to be part of that the the table culture. I think wine is part of the table culture of a civilized society. And, yeah. That's the right use of alcohol because I'm very conscious too, as, as you are, I'm sure, and many of our listeners about that alcohol in this can, can be abused, you know, like, is, and, yeah. and alcohol for alcohol's sake can become so destructive. But for so many centuries, like wine has been the table beverage of, of civilized yeah. society, and uh, I, I'm I'm proud of being part of that. Hundred percent. And mm. so. What else do you guys bring? So we've talked about the microclimate, the soil, the risk, the curiosity. When I order cases of Clonakilla, it's a seamless process. Your e-commerce is good. Delivery is good. Um, 
everything just works. What else are you proud of? What else are you doing well in business that people need to hear about? Um, is it your culture? Is it your team? Is it- totally. Yeah, team is essential. You know, I've got uh, great, great people. It's just an honor to work with the people that I work with. You know, Brian Martin is my winery manager and a, and a great uh, wine and food man. He's got his own brand, Ravensworth, as well, yeah. and they're doing fascinating stuff there. Uh, my general manager, David Reese, is a fa- fabulous guy, Canadian. Just a beautiful, He's in Canada at the moment. A great photographer. He does so much of our image work. He takes all our photos for our uh, Facebook feed and our Instagram and all of our, you know, newsletters that we send out. Mm. So having that, um, uh, some of those things in place, you know, really good and effective communication, good imaging, uh, of course, customer service. And that becomes a cultural thing too, you know, um, that we try and respond quite quickly when people place an order that that's not left in the bottom drawer somewhere for yeah. a couple of weeks before we uh, action it. But, but let me, uh, let me ask you about your staffing because David has been there for how long? How long has David been there? I know David and he's been there for. <sighs> well, he started off doing some cellar door work for us. It must be 20 years ago or really? even longer. All right. So here's yeah. the question. Not a lot of places. Hire people that stay for twenty years. Now well, we got we got Michael Layev, who's the most exactly great, he's, great he's, guy. Mick is he's been with us for close enough to thirty. That's amazing. Yeah. He's a lovely human. He by the is way. amazing. Michael Layev, many of um, you know listeners might have encountered him somewhere along the track. He's, he's just a, great a, a great gentleman. And a, so and why do they stay? I mean, obviously it's a beautiful place. You know, they're not stuck in a concrete bunker somewhere. They're in a nice place. But why do your people stay? And I mean, I know you don't like to talk too much about you, but. Why are you not churning staff, honestly? Well, that's a great question, and I'm not sure if I have an answer. But uh, look, it's a great, as I've said, you know, it's a community. We uh, we do care about each other, I think. And, um, uh, you know, you always have ups and downs in any business week. There's always moments of stress and, stress and pressure, Um I don't know. It's an excellent question. I, I just think we've got a, a very positive culture. What is um, that? What is that positive culture? Why other most many places don't? Well, you know, we kind of people matter, and lives matter, and families matter, and you know that we try and kind of have a care for each other. I think that's not, not saying too much to to say that. I, I would like to think that's the case. Uh, we we I don't know what can we say about that? Uh, it's a it's a it's a it is actually a really important question about culture because every business, whether it's you know a little two person show or a multinational, has has a culture. I've, I've been listening to some some other podcasts on that exactly that topic, and I find it fascinating. Well, and, tell uh, me, like in terms of how you care for your people, like I of um one of the guys that works here in my office, I buy him health donuts. Health donuts. Health is that donuts. a thing? I never heard it's of it. It's a thing from uh, another local Canberra business. Shout out to Urban Pantry here in Monica. Um, I go down each morning and get uh, and get one of the guys here his coffee and a health donut. Health. These donut. are new health donuts. They uh, they reduce weight. Very special. <laughs> Shout out to Urban Pantry. Not sure if it's true, but that's what I tell them. Um, I've got to try that. A small small details. How do you how do you care for your people? I don't know. It's I find it hard to put words around it. It's just. Uh it's just, it's just that corridor conversation, you know, how you doing or, um, how's the family or, um, what, what's happening for you? Is there, you know, I don't know. It's just a concern for people, interest in people. I mm. just, cause I've, um, you know, I, I, part of my whole philosophical framework is that people matter yeah. and, uh, people matter ahead of profit or people are your first and last resource and that, that they are inherently uh, fundamentally have dignity and matter so yeah. look that sounds probably a little bit too uh, wafty uh, because i don't i don't do that very well all the time but uh, if people are staying 30 years you're probably doing it more often than not <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I'm sure. Look, I, I, in many ways, I want to reflect on it further because it really does matter. The whole thing about culture is it's a key issue for business, I reckon. Well, just put your advice hat on for a sec, which I know you don't enjoy doing, but for people listening who've got staff, what do you think are just a, just a couple of key points about people and culture and staffing? It's a big thing. So what could you impart to people mm. practically that you think helps them? Well, yeah, it's... Uh I remember one of the things that Jim Collins would talk about was um, um, making sure you have the right people on the bus yeah, and then making sure that they're in the right seats on the bus. And yeah. I think that's something sometimes we have to learn the hard way. 
that you do have to make good hiring decisions, and that's difficult, and uh, we none of us are going to get that right all the time. But um, so it's a combination of competency, certainly, and you know, because look, I'm good at one or two things, and and very poor at many things. Mm-hmm. So it's essential for the functioning of Clonacula that we have very competent people in the business, because I'm significantly am not. Um, and we we have that, you know, we definitely have, um, mentioning Michael Layef, uh, Brian there in the winery, and Nick in the vineyard, and Annabelle, who's my uh, personal assistant and uh, office manager, and uh, Anna on finance, uh, just as Salador we've got David, we've got so many great people, you know, and competence is, is obviously key, but it's more than competence, it's it's people who I suppose carry a vision for what we're trying to do, who believe in what we're trying to do. And in a way, that's part of the culture too, is that they kind of take on the passion that started with my dad as the founder and now continues with me as the CEO and chief winemaker, you know, that they they get it, you know, they is, get it. Is this too much of a stretch? Like, and I, I really don't want, I don't believe this is abstract and it has value for listeners. This concept of building a beautiful business, a beautiful product is this permeating into staffing and culture and is it all part of the same They're an essential part of that, absolutely. Uh, Like as I've said a few times, I just think it's important to reinforce that wine is made by a community. You know, like I'm referred to as the chief winemaker and I always kind of wince a little bit because it's not as if I'm making the wine. We've got Jeff in the vineyard, you know, and Brad working with Jeff, working hard every day. Like it's a community that makes wine. It's a community. And... um, that's a big part of my consciousness. I, I I would like to think, and is increasingly becoming so that that it's a community that makes wine. We all have our different roles to play, but um, that we're all caught up in this great passionate adventure together. Yeah, I want to ask you something else. Um, I often like to say in business that failure is relatively easy. Um, you know, success can actually is hard, but it brings with its own challenges. You guys have had a fair bit of success, especially in recent years, based on all these factors. Mm-hmm. How do you handle success? What stops hubris? Um, how do you deal with success? Do you have a quiet sense of appreciation? I mean, some people turn into the office psychopath. How do you manage momentum and success? Like, how do you keep the growth engine growing? I mean... Yeah, how do you deal with success? No, oh, it's another good question. I, and I, I don't really know the answer. Uh, you, do, you do want to keep hubris in check, and I'm, you know, I guess none of us can entirely stay the right side of that line. Sometimes you can get a bit uppity, and um, particularly if you get lots of accolades, and and, and we do, uh, amazingly. Um, but you know, the, being in a community again and a family, like that has a way of knocking you. If you get a bit sort of put a few tickets on yourself, you know, there'll be plenty of people around how yeah. to help you, kind of peel them off it's called marriage yeah excellent what a great that's a great thing uh so it's important to celebrate too though the yeah. wins i think and we you know we've had a lot of wins as you've referred to and and i've referred to but we've also had some big challenges and that's another on podcast of its own probably like we've had things like crippling frosts i remember, remember that one, i yeah. remember the 16th of november 1996 where it uh, this freezing mass of air rolled in off seemingly off antarctica and settled over southeastern australia and for four hours it was like minus two minus three and we woke up in the morning and, and the vines just started wilting and shriveling before our eyes effectively 90 percent of the crop gone you know and by this stage we're already talking millions of dollars so yeah, those sort of things can knock you about. And um, are you a stress head? Are you a, do you get despondent? How do you deal personally as a business leader in a community of people? How do you deal with challenge and adversity? And, yeah. And- oh, there's certainly times in my early years where, you know, like I remember once, um, I was trying to buy a f- secondhand fridge in Fishwick and <laughs> it was uh, mid-March and it was pouring with rain and all yeah. our grapes were sitting out there and it was pouring with rain and I, and I'm a fairly mild-mannered person, but I nearly came to a physical altercation with the bloke <laughs> selling me the second-hand fridge because I'm sure it was ripping me off. Oh, no. <laughs> Trying to rip me off. And, but but, but, what, stress, but, but right? I was just so stressed because the rain, the rain, the rain, and, of course, you've got no control. Yeah. These days I think I'm a lot more, you know, after whatever it is now, 25 vintages, 22 as um, as the winemaker myself, that the um, – you know, you, um, you're more philosophical and what will be will be and what will come will come. And, yeah. um, you know, we've had vintages like 2011 where it just didn't stop raining. And interestingly, 
I did a, a big tasting with uh, some other folks um, just last week. 15 vintages of Shiraz Viognier, and I deliberately put in the 2011, and it's the toughest vintage I've ever had anything to do with. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Still good. It was just fragile and elegant. So that's the part of the challenge, that you, you have to learn to roll with the challenges that are thrown at you. Yeah. You've got no control over the weather. So if it rains a lot, you know, how, well, how do you make a good wine in that context? Or if you get a drought year, how do you make a good wine in that context? How do you tease out the best elements of the vintage and, and capture it in liquid form, you know? You control the controllables, right? And totally, totally. Mm. And, and you roll with the punches a bit. And, um, yeah, frost to drought, rain, we've had it all. Plagues of grasshoppers, uh, we've had it all. Uh, and, and you learn over time, by the time you're my grand old age, in my early 50s, that uh, you've got no control, so mm. you might as well enjoy the ride. Well, and uh, I'm listening to you. My brother used to say he was a, my brother was a lawyer for a long time, and he, there was a famous saying in that space was, there's no such thing as a good young lawyer. Yeah. Is that sometimes you just got to get knocked around. Uh, and especially, I think, in some of the entrepreneurial spaces that I follow, there is this idea that, you know, young startups have just got to be nailing everything. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes you've just got to live long enough and persevere long enough. I'm going to tell a story. Our first ever business, we had an office at the National Press Club here and um, my feet uh, were up on the windowsill. We, we had a really bad year and my accountant had just been on the phone and it was like, it was dire. And my feet were up there and I was staring blankly out the window to what's now Hotel Realm. And as wives, only wives can do, Karen just walked in about something else. She was working with me there and she, she walked in with a question about some business thing and she just stopped. And she just looked at me and she said, what is it? And I'm like, uh, I just sort of explained how bad things were. Hmm. And then here I am all these years later and, and we've done really well. And I'm like, you just got to live yes. through those seasons. Yes, there was something else I wanted to ask. And you, you learn from them. You learn from the adversity and the and the things that go wrong and the mistakes that you make. And yeah, I mean, what's that saying? You know, it's okay to make mistakes as long as they're new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and listening to you too, the other big thing I'm into learning more and more about is this this general move to mindfulness in general in culture. We're seeing has helped me in the sense that my brain can be very active. Totally. But sometimes in business, it's a, to be able to go. You know what? I got to get through twenty four hours. I can't control every variable here, but I can do tomorrow. So right. even last night, like we've been very busy and I'm like, okay, I've got three interviews today, uh, new staff studying all this stuff. And I'm just like, previously my brain would explode. <laughs> and, uh, but now I'm like, just today, let's just do today. Right. So any podcast listeners out there are stressing about this situation. You know what? You can't control two months time, but you can control today. Uh, Tim, a couple more questions. Cause I know we've got to get you out of here on time. What are you looking forward to? What's uh, what? What are you looking forward to in, in this adventure of beauty, this journey of a beautiful product and a community of people and expressing this landscape? Mm. What keeps you going? Why not, uh, you know, get some comfy slippers and go and play golf? And <laughs> what are you excited about? Well, you know, like uh, I am, as I mentioned, I'm 51 now. So, look, there are many other things I'm interested in. One is uh, a great passion for me, as people can tell, I think, but it's not my only passion. So this. I love music, and I'm great. Great to hear you playing the guitar again. A little, little bit of so, Celtic. Got the mate in back out. Yeah, you still playing a bit? Yeah, totally. I you am. are more and more. Hopefully, and I, I'd love to do something more with that. My, yeah. you know, you're a good mate of my uh, young brother Stephen. He's yeah. just on his fourth CD. He's so good. He's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So he's got uh, he's got the talent and the application. Yeah. So I need. A, I've got some going. some talent, but I'm a bit light on. Is there a link here between music and wine? There must be, right? Well, it's kind of back to that thing about beauty. Like, and wine is. Um, you're capturing something from the landscape and uh, it gives people so much pleasure, really, if it's done right. And then, of course, music is the same. I definitely think there's a connection between wine and music. Totally. So what are you totally. excited about? What else are you excited about? What are you looking forward to? In your business, what what, what, what does the future hold for you guys? I love the fact, you know, I'll say this, that um, we've been on, on a journey with the whole Canberra community with our wine. I think there was a time when um, there was a time when Canberra folks maybe weren't as convinced about the local wines and you can understand this you know like they were small we were making mistakes the wine was mediocre sometimes quite good at other times and um, but that's definitely changed it's the last 15 or 10 years in particular I think the Canberra community has really come to celebrate 
um, the local wine industry here. Yeah. And I find that very uh, exciting and very encouraging. You know, I think we kept it's because we're proud of it because it's actually totally. it, it is genuinely a really good yeah. product. And and with and with reason, you know, like we, if you forgive me, this is probably going to sound a bit vain, but I just know for sure that you can take say some of the great Shiraz from this region and put it up against any Shiraz you want to really? from anywhere in the world. Yeah. And and I've done it numerous yeah. times. I've seen it in blind tastings up against the great French wines, great Australian really? wines, great New Zealand wines. And Canberra Shiraz often comes out at or near the top Does of really? the tasting. Seriously. No, we're not making this up, you know. And, and I think we have been, we've begun to be effective in communicating our, and this is, this is a key for you in terms of how we think about marketing. Mm. This is what I understand marketing to be. It's sharing, linking all of the stuff we've talked about together, sharing your genuine enthusiasm for the genuinely good product that you found, that you have, in such a way that's infectious, that people just want. Like you said before, you said when I start talking about wine, you want to start well, reaching I for start a glass. Drinking it, so it's working. Because it's infectious. He's using Vulcan mind tricks on me. He's <laughs> making me want to drink wine. Well, you know, but it's actually, the wine is actually really pretty good. So the, what's the essence there? I'm, I'm thinking of adding value to everybody listening, and I'm going you got to believe that what you're doing, whether you're a concreter making wine, whether you're a florist, whether you're in finance, real estate, if you're in a business, you got to believe that what you're doing is bringing value to people, right? Totally. Do something good. Yeah. Do something good with what you're doing, you know. Like concrete, we, we've got a beautiful new cellar door, which um, some of your listeners may have been to. We've had it over two years now, and it's just a beautiful space, and it's got this polished concrete floor mm. it's a concrete floor but it's kind of <laughs> just looks good it looks great and it's the platform on which we stand and you look up into the vineyard and you look down to the bar and you taste wine at clonakill and there's the stone walls there and it's just it's just part of that created environment it's a thing of beauty so do what you do with pride and um find yeah find the goodness in it and know that you're doing good for people i i think that's the other thing i want to leave you with and this is no news to you mate because this is totally your language it's um it's it's working what your values are what are your value yeah. what's going to be what's important to you really you know and it's not going to be like i sometimes think this is sort of like something that ignatius of loyola one of the great heroes of um of um spiritual life said you know that you should be able to once you imagine yourself on your deathbed yeah. looking back on your life what are you going to be proud of really you know mm. what what were your fundamental values what good did you do in the world and it's not going to be about you know how manically busy you were and yeah. or how much money you made it's it's about you know did i do good did i do things which were a blessing for people rather than a burden for them so it's a great quote uh, i might have shared this with jason in the last podcast is that richest person in the graveyard is not the goal of life uh-huh. you know it's um it's about building something um so i want to encourage everybody listening like we're such a frenetic culture we're so busy and distracted that i um i personally take one day a fortnight now just to sort of step out and to journal and think. And I want to encourage people listening to to take some time, go and find a place maybe with some paper where you can just reflect on what it is that you bring into the world. If your business is struggling, are you? do you believe in what you're doing? Are you bringing something of value? Um, mate, uh, any people starting in businesses, people trying to grow, a couple of key things. What do you think are the elements of business? What are the pillars of business? Well, I guess circling back to where we uh, started in some ways, it's curiosity. Curiosity, I think, is key. Um, uh, pay attention. Pay attention, you know. Like what? Where is there something that you can contribute that's going to actually do good for people that's going to become a, um, um, using that word again, a blessing, you mm. know? Uh, I think that's key. A product of genuine quality. That's what you need. Something that's going to be uh, a source of good for people, for the world, you know. Uh, find that. Look for that. Um, and be curious, you know. Sometimes these things can be hidden in plain sight, you know. Well, that's, you know, you mentioned Steve Jobs. I'm not, not know much about Steve, really, but uh, just his curiosity, uh, his yeah. fascination with things and, and his capacity to dream about what might be, you know. Like, I think we have to, as you said, you've got to give yourself time to dream and think and reflect mm. and stand on a slightly someone else's shoulders if necessary so you can see see a bit further than you've seen. 
to this point. Um, it's all out there. We're just not a massively reflective culture, but based on our conversation, I think if you if people spend a bit more time with good wine and a bit more time with good music, <laughs> yes. there's a good chance you'll be reflective. Now I've got to get you out of here, so I'm gonna um, I'll do an, an outro after Tim's gone. But if you're listening to this and you haven't tried Clonakilla, um, I, I don't want to be rude, but I don't know what you've been doing. And you should just take a moment to chastise yourself because uh, – Don't be too hard. Yeah, don't be too hard on yourself. And after you've been hard on yourself, have a good glass of red wine because I want to direct you to the website, um, clonakilla.com.au. That's correct. Yeah, clonakilla.com.au. This will all be in the show notes, but if you haven't tried this wine, then no matter – even if money's tight – Get yourself a bottle, get yourself something nice and enjoy this. Um, it's it's a, not only you're supporting a great Canberra region business, but you're doing yourself a favour. I'm going to put links to um, Clonakilla's Instagram. We're going to connect you to their social feeds. Get on their newsletter because they do these amazing dinners uh, just with another you know way to support the local business community. They do it with some really great restaurants like Monster and other places and um, – it's a chance to sample some great food, get some friends together and enjoy some amazing wines. And I've been to one, and as humble as he is, Tim, is a great – would we call you a raconteur? Is that what we would call you? Is that it? I think I prefer evangelist. Evangelist. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a product evangelist. He's a, he's a great theological evangelist. But when you go to his wine dinners, he makes everybody in the room feel comfortable because I know that some of us are afraid of that wine snobbery and yep. are wondering if uh, if you know we can taste the uh, the floral notes and – so he'll make you feel very comfortable. It's a great way to spend time with good friends. So let's connect you to all that stuff. So go check out the show notes. But for a start, check out clonakiller.com.au or Clonakiller Wines. Do a Google search. You'll find it. I've loved doing this. I want to thank you, my friend. I've enjoyed this. I have the best job at the moment. It's really good to do this. So hey, do. thank you for bringing beauty to the world. Thank you for supporting this local community with a great business that we can all be very proud of. And I am going to book you uh, back on the show because we have a lot more philosophical musings. We can start a new podcast on the... So thank you, my friend. Thanks for coming. It's a great pleasure, Jonathan. And thanks for all you're doing, mate. This is great. Awesome. Thanks, pal. Well, there you go. How good was that? Well, when I sat there in the room, time just absolutely flew and uh, Tim was animated, he was passionate. It was just so good to hear him talk about something so close to his heart. So I don't know if you were anything like me listening to that, you kind of felt maybe it's time to go and have a glass of red wine. If you're feeling that way and I recommend that it's a good idea, jump on the Clonakiller website, grab yourself some of the best wine in this country and support a great local business and you will really enjoy this great product. So that's it from me for this week. From Canberra Executive Coaching, I'm Jonathan Doyle. If you want to get in touch about personal executive coaching or business consultancy, please reach out to me. I have the privilege of working with clients all over the world. If you want to take your business, your personal well-being, your personal effectiveness to another level, get in touch with me. It'd be great to make contact with you. But for now, that's it. Make sure you subscribe wherever you're hearing this, Apple Podcasts, Google uh, Android, wherever you are, there'll be a subscribe link here so you don't miss the next show. But for now, that's it from me. Have a great week. Tune in next week. It's going to be good. I'm Jonathan Doyle. Speak soon. Bye.